Hi, my name is Riley Haas. I'm the host of No Cultural Authority, a raucous podcast about classic albums, and I'm also the co-host of the Backtrack, a hockey podcast about the Hall of Fame. This podcast you're about to listen to is based on my 2013 book, The Beatles Are the Greatest Rock Band of All Time, and I Can Prove It, which you can find online at Amazon and Smashwords. So welcome to The Beatles Are the Greatest Rock and Roll Band of All Time, and I Can Prove It. My name is Riley Haas, and this is Chapter 2. For Chapter 2, I am once again joined by my friend Dave. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty all right. That was really well-timed, by the way. The the cracking <laughs> open of the, the beer. I, I like that. Um, I was trying to be quiet and subtle about it, but I guess I wasn't. <laughs> I, hope, I hope it picked it up, because that was great. And so Chapter 2 is a brief summary of music prior to the Beatles to help try to place them in context, historical context, specifically. First off, I want to talk about how we can go about understanding the historical importance of any group of musicians. And I think the biggest hurdle for that is sort of for us, particularly not having been there, it's really kind of hard to go back in time and fully place yourself in a particular era. Nothing can actually like transport us to another time when things were changing in a way that you know we were not present for right so like it's possible that through art we can we can sort of get some idea but and for people who were there maybe that art will bring them back through nostalgia but we're basically and anybody who didn't live through any particular revolutionary time in the arts is at a loss it's just the way it, it is it's the way time works and so there, there are certainly people who were alive during the Beatles' reign who probably still to this day believe that they were really transformative, but like, that's not who I'm trying to convince when I wrote this book, published this book now almost over 11 years ago. Rather, it's the people who weren't there who, who I'm trying to convince. And of course, so now I have this, this barrier because they weren't there and it's just much harder to convey, convey like the feeling of the moment of, of things changing forever. Interesting. I'm going to go on a limb here, though, and say that just generally, people are probably pretty comfortable with the idea of change right now. Yes. And things being radically changed. And maybe the importance of the arts in there, which I think, if you were to have this conversation even 10 years ago, I think it would have been a much larger, more of an uphill battle to get that well, done. And when I wrote this book, it was in part in reaction to people discussions I was having with friends who were like, really really reluctant to hear this or they didn't want to hear it because they sort of couldn't imagine exactly what you're talking about just on that note as well get back the much much longer version of let it be the beatles infamous concert film just came out on disney plus uh, last month and like i think that's revived a whole bunch of interest in the band and like maybe some idea even though that is not about the most revolutionary part of the beatles really the it's not about that that part of the Beatles at all. I do think like it it shows them in a way that a lot of people had never seen them before, and that also probably helps people think about them differently than maybe the audience that I was thinking of when I first wrote this. Well, I was just also going to question like how the nostalgia cycle would fit into this. Yeah, because that's that also would I would think would play into like there would be what two cycles ago really. Because they weren't very active in like the '80s, which is sort of where where a lot of the nostalgia cycle is sitting right now. That's yeah, no, the, thirty plus I mean, years ago. Paul, Paul McCartney was to some extent, but that's it, right? Like, 
Well, and and George Harrison had a really big hit in the late eighties, but like John Lennon was already dead, and yeah. uh, Ringo Starr was already doing the Nostalgia Circuit tour by that point. And I honestly don't know how many of Paul McCartney's hits, aside from the ones he did with Michael Jackson, were actually hits in the eighties. Most of them were seventies hits. I think this book sort of formed from like drunk debates at a writers group I was in back in the aughts, and. Uh, I was the youngest, second youngest person in that group, and a lot of them grew up. I was a teenager in the 90s. They were teenagers in the 80s, and they were like, they grew up in a world in which the Beatles were just like, eh, it's a thing that happened for my like older cousins or whatever, or my parents. And, you know, they really didn't seem to get it at all. As you said, it cycles, right? It is totally yeah. cyclical. But I do think there, there have been groups of people since the Beatles broke up that really, were like either really fond of that music and really liable to like or be susceptible to the kind of arguments I'm about to make, or quite the opposite of being like, oh, you're 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 sort of full of shit. And I guess overall, you're trying to make the argument outside of the of the nostalgia cycle yeah. of the Beatles, like the Beatles for the Beatles' sake. If you yeah, will. well, particularly I'm trying to make a historical argument that doesn't matter how people feel about them, right? Like in theory, I think there's objective evidence for my case is the reason i wrote the book and in order to get there i first want to talk about music both popular music before rock and roll and rock and roll so first off by the time of rock and roll's emergence as a popular genre in the mid-1950s what you might call western popular music or folk music which is something separate from high art music classical music had undergone a big transformation it had originated as traditional songs passed down from family to family distinct and separate from the court music of Europe, you know, people had sort of just passed on songs and just melodies, essentially. There were huge differences from, from you know, particular ethnic group to ethnic group, country to country, but they passed on songs that were just sort of not refined, I guess is a nice way of putting it. That sort of was in stasis in many ways while art music was evolving. And in fact, when art music exploded, in the 20th century, that breadth of music that came into existence in the first half of the 20th century would have been shocking, not just to the, the people who were, who were actually professional musicians making music for, for the rich and the powerful, but even just like the, the people who were passing these folk songs on from generation to generation. They just, they, all they really knew were these, these simple melodies that they essentially inherited. And when we look back, I'd say the beginning of the first half of the 20th century, we might see a very limited variety. But to somebody who had grown up, especially in an unschooled house, where they all they knew was like the folk music of their village, the music that, that exploded in the first half of the 20th century would have been utterly shocking, the variety of them. So one of the things I want to talk about is is what happened. And basically, prior to the 20th century, there was very little interaction between what you might call the various art musics, right? There, European art music, Indian art music, and Chinese art music. And that's important because in the West, music was primarily shaped by Western art music, European art music, and not Indian or Chinese art music. And so I'm ignoring that partly because I don't know anything about it and partly because it's just briefer, easier, and, and also because rock and roll, for example, emerged in a world in which at least initially, Indian and Chinese music essentially didn't exist. I have a question. Sure. I guess it's not tangentially argumentatively, but are you 
you're sort of glossing over the impact or maybe maybe we'll get to it later but the impact of african music yeah so i'm not i'm not gonna gloss over that but like the the thing is at least as far as i'm aware the difference with a lot of african music is that there wasn't the same kind of like established continuous tradition of like quote-unquote art music as there was in europe india and china like there were various kingdoms that had their different forms of music but there wasn't this persistent like essentially professional class of musicians that i'm aware of it may be true i just i i literally don't know but as far as i know in europe there was a professional class of musicians since the you know since the early middle ages in uh china that existed even longer in india i honestly don't know how how many centuries but both in china and india they had these professional class musicians like they did in europe and i don't know that that was true in in africa and if it was true in africa it's just been documented so much less than the other three regions right that would also be that would also be pretty accurate i think yeah so anyway just i'm gonna do a very brief summary of so-called classical music western art music just because i think it helps place what eventually happened with rock and roll in context so just for anyone who doesn't know anything about classical music classical music means two things it means western art music to this day from from its origins in plain song 1500ish years ago to to art music being made today but it also refers to a distinct period in time and generally speaking when i say classical i mean actually the period of time of classical music in the 18th century and not actually the whole of western art music so during the dark ages in europe there was a little of what would pass for us as a, a sort of professional music greek and roman music was largely forgotten during the so-called dark ages and people didn't have their time and resources to spend music expression basically music was only in the church essentially at that point or at least our record of that is it's quite possible that there were the familial songs and stuff i was talking about a minute ago but like there's like no record of it the record is church music and this is normally called plain chant it was composed for religious services and it was just a tune with a fairly three rhythm and they were singing liturgies and that's all it was it was different in different parts of the church but generally speaking that's all there was that we have a record of it within europe anyway and in some places it was written down and standardized um particularly in western europe before it was standardized other places but like the records are not great there and and basically people within the church were the only people who had time and training to both become experts at performing but also to actually record what they were doing because you know everyone was sort of living at a subsistence level or a lot of people were anyway but as wealth sort of came back after the collapse of the roman empire there was more money to spend on music and other things rather than just feeding your family and so this sort of spread out to the courts eventually and also there were advances in musical technology better instruments as well as just generally better preserving of the stuff that was being written down so in the renaissance there was essentially retroactively people sort of say there was a split whether or not there actually was a split it's really debatable but there is supposedly this split between art music and popular music as the courts get more and more lavish and are more and more willing to spend money on not just uh musicians but composers 
um, who will write music for these musicians and for ceremonies and stuff, and for people who have instruments who just sort of wander the countryside performing for local towns who are completely divorced from these core traditions. Whether that was, whether this is more theoretical and a nice way of glossing over the reality, messy reality of history, I'm not actually sure. But that's sort of where there's sort of a distinction made between high art music and popular music. And there are more and more instruments than ever now, and so there are instruments you can carry, you can play while you walk, but then there's also more and more instruments within courts that like can't really be moved, and you know you need uh, like years of training to be able to perform, and you need a benefactor in order to be for the to perform them, and so those skew in two completely different directions, and that is how we get Baroque music, which is, in my opinion, pre. 20th century the most sophisticated and complicated music that humanity had produced as far as i'm aware anyway where oh, yeah yeah you could argue if anything it's like anti-popular right because it's extremely musically sophisticated it requires a ton of training to play box music is just arguably an outlier he's the most sophisticated of all these sophisticated composers but like he's taking musical theory to almost its logical conclusion and so you need lots of training bach essentially being paid by princes to just compose for his life you know so you need um time to write and think about this stuff and then you need all these professional musicians to practice enough that they can actually execute it properly because it's it might look feasible on the page but then you're actually trying to play the all these different parts at the same time and it's extremely sophisticated and it's almost like you know, show a showing off how how rich we are that we can pay somebody to write this stuff. And it was so complicated and so ac- academic that it actually caused a reaction even within the chord music. And that is classical music, which is much simpler. It's all about um, usually a singular musical voice that's catchy. You know, Mozart, the most popular, probably the most popular composer, you know, is a is a classical music composer as compared to Bach, who's Baroque, or Beethoven, who's Romantic. And this music is much more accessible. It is It sort of rejects a lot of the polyphony of, of, of Baroque music. And it's it's about sort of have, almost, almost having a good time, or at least enjoying yourself in a way, instead of like these really complicated academic exercises. Now, whether or not the regular people had any idea this was really happening, if you didn't get into a court area, at this time, you may not have been aware that there was one decade there was this really, really aggressively academic and sophisticated music, and then the next decade it was replaced by like tunefulness. It's 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 really hard to know how much uh, the average person really knew this was going on. So it's interesting because like classical music is actually kind of like it's populist in a way because of how catchy it is, but it was just still very inaccessible to the average person. That was sort of the thing for a little while, but there was a lot going on in the 18th century, and things were changing outside of music. You know, the Reformation happened prior to the 18th century, and that democratized religion in ways that had never been democratized in Europe before. And there were various popular revolutions in the 19th century that you know were sort of moving things more towards the people rather than the wealthy and this encouraged similar thinking in the arts and so at the turn of the 19th century you began to see people 
striving for like more authentic, more real, more down-to-earth forms of expression, which is collectively known as romantic arts, whether it's music or poetry or any number of painting, any number of things. People who had been focusing on tunefulness in the previous decades were now trying to focus. They were still concerned with tunefulness, but now they were focusing on things that were like express their national character and stuff like that. And that starts with Beethoven, but it gets more and more about expressing your local terroir, for lack of a better word. And people, composers would actually seek out the local folk songs that were within within their communities, and especially in the smaller villages and stuff, and start turning them into art music, which had never happened before, or it hadn't happened in centuries anyway. You know, Baroque music was certainly not about that, and classical music really wasn't about that, but Romantic was about sort of grabbing melodies from the people and ideas from your from the community the polity that you're in and it would expand to other things and now the slow democratization of society led to some other things as well though which is that popular music actually started to be performed outside of just like little celebrations in villages or whatever as as industrialization happened and all these other things popular music actually began to get both performed more frequently and at larger venues and also get recorded more. And not just because composers were uh, seeking inspiration from it, but also because there were now there was more money around and, and people were starting to pay for other things. So some people would who may not have had the resources uh, to go to shows in the past, for example, could now go to shows and see, you know, music halls, for example, started to appear. And actually one of the things that happened at this point is that so-called big tunes started being exerted from romantic operas and played for popular audiences in like bars, essentially, which is not a thing that had happened before. And so now you you have some cross-mixing between popular and art music in the 19th century, though limited compared to our standards, but uh, still it's, it's happening. And so you're getting this point now where there's there's sort of actual evidence for the popular music traditions um, because people are performing this over and over again so they're actually having to write it down and stuff and eventually with recording you do get in the 20th century you actually get people recording this stuff so we basically by the dawn of the 20th century there's actually a bunch of different as i was alluding to earlier there's a bunch of different forms of music kind of a bewilderingly a bewildering number of of types of music available, at least in, in the West. So you have romantic art music, which had been birthed by Beethoven, and that's experiencing a crisis. And that crisis is usually called the crisis of tonality, when finally they realized that, uh, composers realized they didn't have to stick within the traditional uh, Western tonal structure, but there were other things that happened. So Impressionism, for example, which is this inspired by painting was this idea of like creating moods rather than creating a, a whole long piece that like built from a introduction to a grand finale. But you also had, again, people violating the tonal rules first as something called atonal music and eventually something called serialism. And then you had, you know, eventually this stuff would sort of just be labeled modernist because we like to do that. Human beings like to think their current age is the modern age. Eventually this would actually lead to reactions as well. And you would have, both classical music and Baroque music were revived in the 20s and 30s and later, specifically the 30s, I guess, as a reaction to all these weird sounds. But then you also have forms of popular music starting to get sophisticated enough to draw some kind of attention. So you have not jazz exactly, 
but the earliest hints of jazz, the dawn of the 20th century um, combination of slave songs that had been brought from Africa into the U.S. and then combined with uh, Western musical instruments that the slaves initially were forced to play, and then eventually sort of this this evolved, and it wasn't the birth of jazz is usually dated to the late teens ish, but mm-hmm. basically it was uh it was sort of already there. Partly there was the blues that was evolving, but also um, ragtime existed at this point. And so these combinations of African music and European music in Europe, you had more and more elaborate bar slash performance hall or music hall music or cabaret in Germany, where they were getting more and more sophisticated of these songs they were playing for paying customers in the US, England, and all over Europe, as well as the rest of the world. But we're focusing on Europe. You had folk music, including the blues in, in the States, starting to be performed slightly more professionally. Though again, before recording none of this was that well documented but basically at this point you could listen to a a wide as wide a variety of music if you were in a a big city and you had some money and you were in europe or the us you could listen to more music variety wise than any other time in history and that's obviously you know there's probably things i'm missing there it's hardly an exhaustive list so at some point and this is happening at the same time, people started to see money in all this. And money, not just from like having professional ensembles that mostly just played for the rich, but, but money everywhere. So as I said before, people were starting to sort of pay for little bits of classical scores to be able to perform like the catchiest part of an opera or something like that. But they also started selling sheet music of both uh, high art things and also some some popular music as well. The piano lowered in cost and people started to have pianos in the home. And so that meant that people would start to buy sheet music and there was, you know, an actual business for for selling copies of of scores. And and more and more money was being thrown into this. And then one of the most important things was around the same time the phonograph was invented and you could now listen to music in your house if you were rich enough without hiring performers or having your own family or in the case of the US prior to the civil war slaves play this stuff and so it let people buy a machine for a price that presumably was a lot cheaper than hiring a string quartet and then they could go buy these really we would now find very delicate and fragile discs and they could play something usually from some kind of high art piece and and very short they were very very short initially so it would just be an excerpt or or in the case of the states like a ragtime tune or something and you can play it in your house and before that if you wanted to perform music in the home you had to know how to play or you had to have somebody come in and so it was a transformative moment and now you know it it exposed ever more people to not just to music, but to all these different forms of music that were happening. And again, there are limits, right? You, you're not going to be able to purchase an entire symphony. Or I guess if you could, it would be, you'd, I don't know how many discs it would take an initial phonograph records to listen to a symphony. It would have been a lot. So the other thing that happened a little bit later that is also important in this process is radio. Radio made it possible to hear records even when you didn't own a record player, which is I mean, you had to buy a radio, 
or you had to know someone who had a radio, but the bar was once again lowered in terms of the price you had to pay. And the radio stations, they would play, um, initially, many places would play higher music, but they also, in some places, they played, they would just, you know, there was a radio station in, like, Missouri that would just, like, advertise, hey, do you know how to play an instrument? Come to St. Louis or Kansas City or whatever it was, and just, like, come on air. And then just showcase various people from all around that part of the United States. And so the more and more people were being exposed to, again, different forms of music than whatever they grew up with. So in theory, by World War II, people who had uh, purchased a radio and or a record player could listen to all the kinds of music that I laid out a minute ago. And, and that had obviously changed a fair amount between the dawn of the 20th century and World War II. Jazz had come into existence and evolved into big band by this point. And actually, uh, country music had been invented by this point, and the blues had become more standardized and, and things like that. But in theory, by World War II, you could listen to all these, all these different things. And of course, that you were limited by where you lived, you know, and what access you had to records and what radio stations you had. And also, if you lived in a city big enough to have multiple venues, who came to the venues? But Basically, the music was more accessible than it had ever been. And this is the world in which the Beatles were born into, which is, I think, quite important to understand what they did. Now, it's worth noting that uh, whether or not it was the actual war itself, there was a massive transformation in music around World War II, both in jazz, jazz in particular, which, which fractured in a whole bunch of different ways, much like romantic music had uh, 50-ish years earlier, uh, but also in terms of high art music. This is when weird things are happening in high art music, very limited ways at first, but when electronic technology is first incorporated into a high art music, specifically through using tape to replicate sounds rather than using instruments. But that's for later. So now I want to briefly talk about um, rock and roll prior to the Beatles' involvement with it. It's a specific genre of music, which, depending on your ethnicity, you either call rock and roll or rhythm and blues in the 50s. It combined elements of blues and country with smatterings of other genres like gospel and big band jazz, and it emerged sometime in the 40s. There is a massive debate about when. And you can actually go on YouTube and listen to some fairly old music that sounds a hell of a lot like rock and roll that, you know, predates a lot of things. So, like, if you were a white teenager or even a white adult in 1954 in the United States, you think the first rock and roll song is Rock Around the Clock, probably. It wasn't, not even remotely close, but it was the first time a white performer had had a hit with this form of music that was had been evolving for a long time. You know, whether it started in the 40s, you might have even started in the 30s. No one's really clear. There's a lot of argument around it. But beginning with that song, it became the most popular form of music in the United States, like really, really quickly, like a couple of years. And it was more popular than anything else in the United States, at least for white audiences. As I said before, it was dubbed rock and roll by the white press. The Black musicians who played it generally just called it rhythm and blues, which it had been called rhythm and blues. Rhythm and blues had existed for quite a while. 
that is another story. But what we don't really realize now is that it actually didn't last very long. It was really, really popular for a few, for like half a decade, basically. The traditional, what we would now call traditional rock and roll. And since it has actually become a genre of rock music now, or a subgenre, and that's sort of hard to get our heads around because we sort of think of rock and roll and rock as synonymous or rock and roll and pop rock is synonymous sometimes, but they're absolutely not. Rock and roll is a very specific genre that, like I said, emerged in the 40s and really became popular in the 50s and then sort of petered out a little bit near the end of the of that decade in the beginning of the 60s. And it's been revived many, many, many times over. But then rock music means something else, which I will, and that plays a big, big part of the this, this story and which I will get into more detail later. Originally, much rock and roll was was also just something called rockabilly, which was a uh, a more countryish version of this, so closer and performed basically almost exclusively by white artists. It was where the country was emphasized more, and so like whether or not people specifically, if you listen to like mid fifties rock and roll albums by white performers, there's actually often a lot of them are just more rockabilly. But whether or yes. not people made that distinction at the time. It might be for some of us. It might be a more re- retroactive distinction, but it was actually, um, you know, it was just sort of like it was a spectrum at the time. And now, and they've, you know, there are rockabilly revival and and psychobilly, a punk version of rockabilly, and some other things that exist now too. But like, it's sort of rockabilly actually, in some ways, gives you a better idea of what early rock and roll sounded like because it it sounds a little more traditional, I think, than than some some rock and roll. So just just as with classical has become the catch-all for all higher music, not just the classical era, rock has become a catch-all for all popular music up into a certain point, rather than rock and roll, the genre. So it's important to talk a little bit about the electric guitar in all this, because rock and roll doesn't really happen without the electric guitar. They emerged in the early 30s. And they were extremely primitive initially. They were just mics on acoustic guitars, and they were hooked up to speakers, and they were not really super useful. But in 1948, somebody made a solid-body electric guitar. So it was actually a guitar made to be completely electrified, and it meant you didn't have any of the technical issues that had existed before. You could just purchase the electric guitar, get it, plug it into an amp, and you had your sound. And that it did two things: it freed up people to actually like consistently perform on these amplified guitars on uh, an instrument that had really not been super popular before even though it was small and portable but also it allowed it to be played as like an actual like l- melodic lead instrument in a way that it had not it had been performed in in high art music a little bit but mostly popularly had not been used as that and then in uh 1951 the electric solid body electric bass guitar was invented to supposedly replace the stand-up bass, though it, it, it took a lot longer to become popular. If you look at 1950s rock and roll bands, like the Comets, for example, the guy in the Comets is playing a stand-up bass, he is not playing a bass guitar. And also, another innovation that took a little time is the first electrified piano happened in 1929, but that took, again, a very long time for that to, to take root, in part because they're bigger, and <laughs> they're, they're less portable. But the reason the uh, electrification is important is because rhythm and blues prior to the solid body electric guitar was played on saxophone. 
you know, the, if you listen to thirties and forties rhythm and blues, the lead melodic instrument is not a guitar. It's a saxophone because the saxophone was loud and the electrification allowed people to change the melodic line from the saxophone to a guitar. A guitar was somehow chicer or cooler. It's eventually because the saxophone's portable, but it also once once amplification got better and once certain things got changed electric guitars were also much louder than saxophones but i'm not exactly sure when that started to make a difference so basically it's worth just briefly covering who the sort of notable figures here everybody knows elvis presley he's the most famous rock and roll icon i guess you could say he's he was very very to his credit he made very clear that he was not in any way the inventor of rock and roll though many people in the press try white press tried to credit him with that and it's a little i i think for modern people to understand it's it's a little like saying eminem or the beastie boys invented hip-hop to say elvis presley invented rock and roll that's laughable everybody knows that's laughable but for some reason partly i guess because there was no internet and knowledge wasn't as democratized as it is in the 21st century People sort of believe white people anyway believed a little bit that Elvis Presley may have created this, and of course he, to his credit, he he said many times he did not. But basically, the the main musicians were Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley, Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, in the first wave, and uh, they, as I said before, they created a phenomenon, they transformed this genre. This that had been the so-called race music genre, and it became the biggest genre in the United States. It inspired a second wave of rock and roll a little bit later. People like Buddy Holly and and some others, and it just it it spread around the world in a way that and popular music hadn't quite done before. But weirdly, it also ended, and it's something that we have a hard time getting our uh, heads around as as uh, you know so-called moderns because we weren't there, and so. There was a symbolic moment, which in on February 3rd, 1959, Buddy Holly, who was a, a star at this point, though younger than the people I just mentioned, and wrote his own songs and, and played lead guitar and stuff. And Richie Valens, who was a teenager who had combined rock and roll with some Mexican-inspired music, and then a guy who's sort of known to history as, as a one-hit wonder, the Big Bopper, they died in a plane crash. And it was... The day the music died. Yes, it is the day the music died, as it's called. And it was actually, rock and roll was waning already. And so it was really, really easy for everyone to just pick up and say, hey, this genre, this is fad is over. There were other genres popping up at, around this time. And so with these three guys dying, even though only one of them was really, really famous, it was a way of, of sort of saying, like, this genre that had been around for about five years was over. And one reason they say that is because Soul was emerging, though still very much on uh, black-only stations. Doo-wop existed. Country and Western music was very, very popular among white audiences. And none of these things were fused together. They were distinct. Go listen to an Elvis album from the 1950s, and what you'll hear is Elvis playing rock and roll or rockabilly on some songs, and then on other songs he plays gospel, and on other songs he plays country, and there's like no... and sometimes an entire album will be like this and there's like no crossover they don't really sound like each other it's very very segmented 
and this is the world that rock and roll apparently ended. This is what the world looked like musically. And so what I want to say is that give a portrait of the summer of 1962. Classical European art music was becoming increasingly fractured, thanks in part to new avant-garde composers who were embracing electronic techniques, which were now known as music concrete, and concepts such as indeterminacy, which is just the idea of, of not knowing what you're going to do next when you're, <laughs> when you're playing rather than knowing what you're going to do next. There was little agreement as to what, whether or not this stuff was music or not, and it was, it was so avant-garde that most people weren't aware of it, and many people thought it was um, noise. Jazz had splintered, so jazz had gone from big band that emphasized big groups with short solos to small groups with long solos, but then cool hit uh, jazz was a reaction to that of playing slower solos. Afro-Cuban jazz had come into the picture where there was an influence of both African music and Caribbean music via the Caribbean. Also, uh, jazz musicians started introducing modes and, and, and non-traditional time signatures and other things to make sort of move jazz along and free jazz had had literally just been invented a couple years earlier uh, the blues had gone from acoustic music uh, made by poor black people to electric music made mostly by poor black people but like was getting more and more prominent especially in in towns like chicago soul and rb had evolved soul had come into existence um, and rhythm and blues as a black form of music was evolving a little bit separate from the white rock and roll that had taken over the world. Gospel was coming more and more professional. Uh, country had started to splinter as well. Even though it wasn't that old, country was invented sometime in the late 20s, and by this point it was breaking into different genres as well, most notably bluegrass, which was highlighting instrumental performances rather than the story song format that uh, country had come from. Folk music, which predated country, of course, was becoming highly politicized and 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 super niche you know if you went into a, a folk bar in in the early 60s in new york you heard like often very very left-wing performers singing very elaborate protest songs and and very few people were listening to it and then to the extent that rock and roll still existed it was like people sort of just repeating chuck berry over and over again and instead there were spin-offs there was um, and there was starting to be uh, surf music in California, which was a combination of rock and roll with sort of particular styles of guitar that evoked waves and things like that. And then there was also the ever more elaborate forms of American pop music from the um, the famous Brill Building in New York City and other places where people were spending more and more time crafting these very short songs and and selling them either to Hollywood to put in musicals or to or uh, movies or selling them to uh, producers to to give to singers all of this was happening in 1962 but they were all pretty separate from each other there wasn't a lot of cross-pollination there was a little bit but there wasn't a lot if you were in one particular genre of music you didn't dabble in another genre of music unless you were elvis and a few other people who did dabble in different genres but you when you dabbled you dabbled you know you 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 put your gospel album out and then you went back to your other thing. You didn't. Dick Dale had no country albums. Dick, that is a, exactly Dick Dale yeah. had no country albums. Um, Dick Dale had Dick, no country albums. You stuck to your lane. Yeah, you stayed in your lane, and so that's where things were at in the summer of 1962 when the Beatles started recording uh, for their record label. And 
you know, if you if you were a music fan, you had more variety than ever before, but you also had, like you said, Dave, people very much stuck in their lane doing one particular type of thing. And it the musical world was dominated by well, the popular music world, I should say, was dominated by producers and songwriters who who had managed to gain certain songwriters had managed to gain more power by writing enough hits and then they could become producers themselves. And it wasn't really an artist focused world. And and label heads as well, it's worth pointing out. These people, you know, sort of were tastemakers a little bit and and they would try to figure out what the next craze was, but also very much within their own particular world. So that is the brief summary of the world the Beatles were about to jump into. Yeah. That sounds really indicative of um I guess maybe the pop art scene overall during that time. Yeah, maybe not pop art, it's not the right way to say it, but I mean you had studio houses who were making movies and they had their they had their cast of actors and you made the movies that they told you. There wasn't from what from what I recall from that period, there wasn't the same level of um artistic control or artistic especially in the u.s drive yeah Yeah. like especially in the u.s like you had warner brothers and warner brothers made these kind of pictures and they made these kind of pictures because they thought they were a big event a big thing and they very they very rarely deviated from what they knew that was going to work like they made the big they had their big musical productions they had their westerns and they had their whatevers and that's all they did and they like if you were if you were a Western actor, you were a Western actor. That's absolutely right. It was very hard to switch genres, and it was also like like you said, certain studios didn't make certain types of movies, but they would double down on whatever they did. And yeah, I think it was. I mean, I don't know enough about like the visual arts scene to know if that was similar to the, in visual arts, um, outside, like you know, in terms of painting and photography and that kind of thing. But certainly in the movie world and the music world, yeah, things were very very in the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, certainly the english-speaking world not maybe not so much other places because certainly cinema was far more interesting outside of the english-speaking world mm-hmm. in in the 40s and 50s um than it was in the english-speaking world but like in the english-speaking world it was very much this is what you do keep doing this until you're too old <laughs> you know basically <laughs> and yeah. then and then we'll find someone younger to replace you and that's and that's what it was and and rock and roll was just like it was it had been a brief disruption where this new thing had come along and it was a teenage fad and it was great but now it's over we all made some money and now it's over and and move on to the next thing whatever that is motown surf who knows what it what people thought it was and that's yeah and that's so that's what i wanted to lay out because it was a i think we have a really hard time uh, existing in this world of like never-ending choice, we have a really hard time appreciating. Well, I mean, that. like, how how often do you find an artist now that is a country artist or is a yeah whatever artist? Like, everything is melded. Everything's a giant melting pot. Like, yeah. modern country now or new country, whatever it's called, is like you know you have Billy Ray Cyrus dropping in on a what? what, what how big was that song a couple years ago? Old Town Road. Old Town Road. Like, yeah. you had Billy Ray Cyrus, who we hadn't heard of in God knows how long, comes up on a young guy, a young, young guy's up and coming hip hop smash. And then suddenly now there's a whole new fusion of country and hip hop. There's bluegrass hip hop. Like, yeah. there, I don't know. I, like, I'm having a hard time 
really thinking of an artist who is like, I do this one thing and it's not a meld of a bunch of different stuff. Like I, yeah. there's not, there's not punk rock anymore. It's like electro, whatever punk or yeah. everything's got to get mixed with a bunch of different things. Cause everything's so melded. And if you don't, if you don't go back and look at the once upon a time when you played rock and roll or you played jazz or you played whatever it was, that's what you played. Even, even the people who think they're playing one style music, like there's a lot of country performers who would tell you they play country. That country is through the filter of like nineties country, right? Like it's popped, it's popped up or in some cases it's metaled up. Like I've heard some country songs where there's like palm muting. And I'm like, yeah. what what the hell is <laughs> what? Yeah, like, what is that? When, and they think it's country, when, you know? When you go from like a Conway Twitty track, who is fairly straight ahead white country. Yeah. And then even getting into some of the stuff from the nineties, like Achy Breaky Heart, and like you hear the the bones and the DNA of it, but there's a lot of other stuff even coming into it then and you yeah. look at what 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 passes for country now, and it's it's miles and miles away. Yep. Agreed. Anyway, so that's, that's all I have for this episode. There's not really a lot of point of arguing about this is history. This is, this is what it is. This is just the, the foundation of, of your argument. But I think, I I think a lot of people who maybe not, did not experience the joy of like having to hunt on a radio, like even, even growing up when you had to hunt on a radio station, if you lived in in a metropolis of any size you probably had even on the fm end you still probably had eight or ten stations yeah we had we had plenty in toronto yeah yeah, like like even halifax growing up there was there was a good mix of stations and then there would be community radio which is who knows but like even then even growing up then it there was still a lot more access to different kinds of music maybe not more experimental things it was all fairly it was all still a fairly mainstream but it was starting to get to the to the place where it was it, you were able to find things that were different whereas you know even you know when when my when my dad was growing up there'd be like what one two radio stations maybe yeah. three in pei and records you yeah, would have to have a record player and a record thing so it's a completely different mindset of how different different can be yeah, and some, something I don't think a lot of people would understand that you, like, you grew up listening to what your parents listened to, and that was that, that was probably what all you listened to. Yeah, I, I, think, what, I think absolutely most people listen to what their parents listen to. Yeah, I mean, and one of the things that rock and roll caused was a bunch of teenagers start listening to stuff their parents didn't listen to, which created a whole bunch of like concerns and like if if anyone's gone and watched old you know movies from the 50s like a lot of that like oh my god the teenagers are out of control stuff is like was rooted in the fact that people weren't listening to what their parents thought they should listen to you know for the first time or they felt like for the first time i'm sure it wasn't the first time but it felt like it wasn't yeah Yeah. no it's it's definitely a very very different mindset for someone to get into and hopefully people are able to put themselves into that sort of a uh, headspace as they listen yeah. to more of your argument. So as a setup to that future point, a big part of my argument is that this world we live in of all sorts of mixed genres together with no boundaries 
is a world that is very much created by the Beatles. And I understand that is a very big claim. And so that's why in the coming episodes, I'm going to try to back it up. So I think that's it for us this episode. Yep. And uh, next time we'll be back with the very early uh, Beatles recordings that started to transform the way music was made and listened to. So see you next time.